Take your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5 will be there in a moment. Tonight we continue our brief series on the church and unity. The church and unity. Last week we considered the danger of disunity. Now the Bible gives us a compelling reason for unity. Lots of compelling reasons for unity. The Bible teaches us that God blesses His people. That's one major reason for pursuing unity is is God promises a blessing to those who pursue unity in the church. The Bible teaches us that God blesses His people when they are serving one another in unity. In Psalm 133, verse 1, we hear this, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And then I sent you to Matthew 5. Look at verse 9. We, we looked at these last week. We we began with these last week. Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You know, being a son of God, it should go, should go right hand in hand with peacemaking, with unity making, with unity pursuing. Tonight I want to deal with what the Bible says about our need for unity. Last time it was the danger of disunity. I want to talk tonight about our need for unity. But first, a quick review of where we were last week in our study. We noted the danger of division, the danger of disunity. First of all, we learned that the church will be weak and ineffective. And we could be at risk of falling for anything, falling for false teaching when we are divided. The church cannot survive for God's glory when we're divided. Now, it may go on, you know, the church, it might go on existing as a group of people, but if we're divided, we can't survive for God's glory if we're divided. It cannot be effective for the cause of Christ if we are not serving together in unity. A second danger of disunity in the church is that it is a sign that we're living according to the flesh, not according to the Spirit. A church divided is acting like unbelievers. A church that is divided is acting like people who have no faith that God is working in them for His good purposes. A third danger of disunity in the church is that it leads to a loss of purpose. We lose our direction when we fail to serve together in unity. We stop serving Christ. We start serving the lusts of the flesh. We start serving for our own selfish interests. A fourth danger of disunity in the church is that it can, be, uh, it can cause unbelief. It can lead to unbelief. Division harms not only those in the church, not only weakening their faith in Christ, but it also harms people outside the church in the worst kind of way. It gives them reason to reject the gospel. 
It gives them reason for unbelief when they see God's people can't get along. There's a fifth danger of disunity in the church. It's that it leads to a sinful lifestyle where there is unresolved conflict and division. Satan is gaining ground in the midst of the body of Christ and leading believers to live to satisfy their sinful desires. May it not be so of us. And then a sixth danger of disunity in the church is opposition from God. And we ought not take that lightly. That should sober us up. God hates discord and disunity among His children. God speaks very clearly in His Word that He hates and cannot tolerate the sowing of discord and the sowing of division in the body of Christ. Think of it this way. When we sow disunity, when we sow division in the body of Christ, we're not opposing our brother or sister in Christ. We are opposing God. So that ought to wake us up and compel us to think seriously about pursuing unity. Now that's not an exhaustive list, but that was six dangers of disunity in the church. Those are the high points. Now, turn to John 17. John chapter 17. And before we look at what God's Word says about our need for unity, I want to point out how we ought to take the pursuit of unity in the church seriously, not only because of its dangers, but more importantly because Jesus considered unity a necessity for the church. And the Holy Spirit moved the writers of the Scriptures, like Paul, for instance, to emphasize the importance of unity. So let's note first that we should take seriously the need for unity in the church because Jesus did. Jesus took that need seriously. Jesus prayed for unity. Look at John 17, begin in verse 20. John 17, verse 20, I do not ask for those or for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So I do not ask for these only, Jesus prays, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus not only prayed for his disciples, praying for those who were his representatives in the world, but he had the vision to pray beyond them, beyond his disciples. He prayed for people who would come to faith as they saw the good testimony of these disciples, which is what he was praying for. He, in fact, prayed for us. And what did he pray? Look at verse 21 praying for his disciples then and now that and that verse 21 says that they may all be one just as you father are in me and i in you that they also may be in us look at the so that so that the world may believe that you have sent me verse 22 the glory that you have given me 
I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Here's another, so that. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Jesus was praying for the kind of unity among believers that overcomes all kinds of barriers. Any kind of barrier to the gospel that you can think of, Jesus was praying for the kind of unity that overcomes them. Jesus envisioned a unity among God's children that would overcome anything that would serve to divide them and would be instead a powerful testimony for Christ. The watching world would see God's children, followers of Jesus Christ, pursuing unity amongst themselves. That would be a powerful testimony for Christ before the watching world. Now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So a couple of examples here. So the first one, Jesus prayed for unity. That ought to make that a serious pursuit of ours. If Jesus prayed for this and he prayed for this for his people, then we ought to be all about pursuing this also. But we should also take the pursuit of unity in the church seriously because the Spirit moved Paul to plead for unity and many other writers in the Bible. The Spirit moved writers in the Bible to to plead for unity, and we can see this clearly in Paul's example. Look with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul pleads, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's serious. That's kind of a serious statement. He, he makes this statement to kind of capture their attention. Hey, let me get your attention here, he says. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, what I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Look at verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And what he is challenging them over here was a schism in the church, a division, disunity in the church a division that was harming them and it was harming their sharing of the gospel, their living out of the gospel. He's pleading with the church at Corinth and he points out the foolishness of what they were allowing to cause this division in verses 12 and 13. And so he pleads with them not to let their foolish argument tear them apart from the inside out. So here's where we should begin in our pursuit of unity. We 
must go to God's Word for the foundation of our unity. We must let God's Word direct our thinking in taking a very critical look at any issue that we might allow to divide us. Now we might be inclined here to think about doctrinal differences or differences between differing denominations. And though division in the church is ungodly, I want to just pause here and make this point that it's not wrong to make distinctions between churches and ministers. It's not wrong to make distinctions between churches and ministers. In fact, the very fact that we have denominations is, is, it can be a very helpful thing. Charles Spurgeon wrote this about differing church denominations. I bless God that there are so many denominations. I appreciate his take here. He says, I bless God that there are so many denominations. If there were not men who differed a little in their creeds, we should never get as much gospel as we do. God has sent different men to defend different kinds of truth, but Christ defended and preached all. Christ's testimony was perfect. So Spurgeon was thankful for denominations that had slight differences in their understanding of doctrine. And, and you should note here, we're not the only church on, on planet Earth, right? The way we believe isn't the only way people believe. And we do differ with, with brothers and sisters in Christ in different denominations. We have some different differences based on our understanding of the Scriptures that we should be able to fellowship with people who believe the gospel and believe the fundamental truths and yet be gracious in our differences. And yet, there's also a place to be careful about, the, about where people land in the truth. Spurgeon goes on to say this, "...to remain divided is sinful. Did not our Lord pray that they may be one, even as we are one?" A chorus of ecumenical voices keep harping the unity tune. What they are saying is Christians of all doctrinal shades and beliefs must come together in one visible organization regardless. Unite, unite, he says. Such teaching is false, reckless, and dangerous. Truth alone must determine our alignments. Truth comes before unity. That's a, that's a really good point that Spurgeon makes. Truth comes before unity, not unity before truth. He says, unity without truth is hazardous. Our, Lord, our Lord's prayer in John 17 must be read in its full context. Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. Only those sanctified through the word can be one in Christ. To teach otherwise is to betray the gospel. So let's now give the remainder of our time tonight to considering what the Bible says about our need for unity. What does the Bible say about our need for unity? And you can go with me to Psalm 133. And we'll be there in a moment. Psalm 133, if division is dangerous, 
And Jesus prayed for the unity of his followers. And the Spirit moved Paul and other writers of the Bible to plead with the church to be unified. What else does God's Word say that helps us understand why the church must work toward unity and why it's so needful for us as Christ's followers? First, I want you to note that unity leads to our joy. (laughs) And we've been noting this in Philippians, and I noted last week that this is one of the reasons I wanted to take up this theme for a brief series on unity because Philippians is dealing with this, and yet I felt like there's so much God's Word says about unity in the church that it's it's helpful for us to kind of make this, take this opportunity to make a, a brief series on this because we can't quite deal with all of this in, in Philippians, in our Philippians study. So first note this, that unity leads to our joy. I say that because of passages like Psalm 133 where we find the familiar passage, the the first verse of which I read earlier. I'll read it again. Uh, Psalm 133, very short. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity, says verse 1. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Uh, Parents with children know this to be true. When their children are enjoying each other's company, how sweet. When they're not enjoying each other's company, that's not sweet. That, and there's no joy for you, and there's, there shouldn't be any joy for them either, right? Uh, we've had that experience a lot in our family, and I, and I thank the Lord that when our kids were doing most of their, during their growing up years, that we burned a lot of firewood, so we always had wood to cut, stack, uh, split, stack hall and it became one of the 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 best things that that uh that helped our kids learn how to get along if if two of them were fighting i would send them out to stack wood together for the afternoon and um and they look back on those days and sometimes i would go out to see how they were doing and they would be laughing together and enjoying one another's company as they worked together this was good for them how pleasant is unity Very, very pleasant. It is good. It is sweet. How joy-giving is unity? There are two examples here, two similes in the text of Psalm 133. The first is the consecration oil on the head of Aaron. Look at verse 2. It is like, it is like, as soon as I find my place here again, Uh, Psalm 133, verse 1, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Verse 2, It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Now this oil that Psalm 133, verse 2 talks about, this oil was intended to consecrate the priest to God's purposes. The thought here was directed to Israel. It's also applicable to God's people everywhere today. When God's people dwell in unity, what we're doing is displaying a genuine consecration of ourselves to God. When we pursue something that God says, this is important to me, and when there is no unity, I hate this, says God. When we pursue unity, we are consecrating ourselves to God's good purposes. 
And when brothers dwell in unity, verse 3 says, it's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. Now the dew of Mount Hermon, it's a necessity for sustaining the vegetation during the dry season. Without the heavy dew, plants die. There's, there's no fruit. There's no life. And that same imagery is seen in Genesis 27. Now, it's interesting, when Jacob tricked his father Isaac into blessing him instead of his brother Esau, Isaac blessed Jacob saying in verse 28, May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. The dew of heaven. How good? How pleasant is it? How joyful can we be? How life-producing is unity in the, in the children of God? God says it's like, it's like the oil that, that shows you're consecrated to serving God with your life. It's like the dew that gives life, that makes things green, that makes things grow. It's like consecrating yourselves to the Lord's service. Another reason for the church to pursue unity is something we heard alluded to already. It's so that the, word, the, the world may believe. It's so that the world might believe. We have the word of God to proclaim. We have the good news, the gospel to proclaim. Why is unity so important in the church? It's important because it's part of our testimony for the cause of Christ. Helping the world see who Jesus is. Helping the world have reason to believe and have faith. We noted this last week when we saw that one of the dangers of division in the church is that it leads to unbelief. You know, we don't want to do this, right? We don't want to take people from the truth. We want to take them to the truth. Division in the church leads to unbelief and it gives people a reason to reject the gospel. That ought to scare us. We ought not want to be any part of giving anyone a reason to reject the gospel. Rejecting faith in Jesus Christ. Remember uh, what we saw in John 17, verses 21 through 23. We have this reminder that one of the purposes for our unity as followers of Christ is so that the world may believe let me read it again, verse 21, John 17, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. How does unity among the people of God help win people in the world for Christ? I think about it this way. People who are in the world, do you think they know how hard it is to get along with people? I, uh, interesting, we're getting to know our neighbors a little bit, especially this time of year. It's a lot easier, right? Everybody's out working on their yard. 
It's so much easier to meet your neighbors when they're out there. You go out and say hi and you get to know each other. And boy, we've got some kind neighbors and I'm thankful for that. But I'm learning about the previous residents in our house. <laughs> and right now I'm apologize. I apologize. So my backyard is atrocious right now and I'm working on it. It's going to take me a while. I was like, and they're like, that's okay. But the previous tenants wouldn't mow their grass until people called the city on them or wrote letters to them. I was like, oh my word. <laughs> so do you think the world knows how hard it is to get along with people? Think of it this way. Often, not all people are this way, and you may have some really good neighbors who want to get along with people that are unbelievers, and they're showing they want to get along with people. But there are a lot of people who could care less, who couldn't care less, right? Who couldn't care less. They don't care about getting along with anyone. The world knows, even people who want to get along know how hard it is to get along with people. How does unity among the people of God help win people in the world for Christ? When we are doing something they know is almost impossible. When we're getting along with each other. When we're unified as a church. That is a powerful testimony to the watching world. When we are learning to get along, when we're learning to be unified, when we're learning to be of the same mind and heart, that is remarkable to the watching world. And that causes people to stop and take note. So for the good of our testimony, we need unity because unity will be a powerful witness. It's not only for our own joy. It's also for the witness of the gospel, for the sake of the good news of Jesus Christ, that it will go far, wide, and deep. Here's a third reason we need unity. It's that if we wish to have true fellowship with the Lord, we must pursue peace. We must pursue unity. If we really want to have true fellowship with God, we hear this, you don't need to turn there, but you know this passage well, probably Hebrews twelve fourteen, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I see a connection there between pursuing peace with everyone and being holy before God. And, and that holiness leads to being able to see the Lord. And I'm not talking about physically see the Lord with your eyes, but I'm talking about being able to see Him in the Word. To see how His Word applies to you, how His Word helps you, instructs you, corrects you, encourages you. We are reminded here that we ought to work hard to be at peace with everyone, but note the connection here between being at peace with mankind, and I would say that that begins with our brothers and sisters in Christ, but it doesn't stop here. We ought to seek to be at peace with our neighbors, our co-workers. If they have a reason to dislike you, it ought to be because of the gospel and not because you refuse to mow your grass. Right? <laughs> because you'll t you may tell somebody about the gospel and they may not like that. That's okay. But it's not okay to be a bad neighbor. Note the connection here between being at peace with mankind and working diligently to be holy and upright before the Lord. 
Part of being holy and upright before the Lord is being what being for what He is for. And He is for unity. We ought to be about unity. He's for peace. We ought to be about pursuing peace. And try as we might to be at peace with people, we're going to find it very difficult if we aren't also working to have a close fellowship with God. We might work really hard for unity and, and fail if we're leaving God out of the mix, if we're leaving the Scriptures out of the mix. Because again, truth before unity. And we need truth for unity. So this ought to compel us to pursue unity in the church it is for the sake of our unbroken fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, but even more importantly, our unbroken fellowship with God. And then a fourth reason to pursue unity in the church is closely related to this, pursue unity, because God promises that those who promote unity in the church will be blessed. Will be blessed. And remember, please don't hear me preaching this health and wealth kind of gospel. When, when we think about God's blessings, they aren't often the way we think of blessings. They may be. They may include great earthly blessings as we think of them, but often God's blessings are far better. It goes back to that joy and peace and wisdom and spiritual strength to endure hardship and grief. Having God's blessings in those times is priceless. Those who promote unity in the church will be blessed. You likely know Matthew 5, 9 well. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We dealt with this a little bit this morning when John led the men in Sunday school hour talking about, just briefly talked about adoption as God's children, being a child of God. You were adopted into God's family. How Precious that is. How precious to be called a son of God. There's blessing that comes with that. But when we aren't pursuing peace, when we aren't pursuing unity, we don't look like God's children. And God doesn't want to bless us when we're being stubborn. When we're resisting what He is for. Interesting here, uh, verse 9, Matthew 5, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. The meaning of peacemaker here is interesting. It signifies parties hold, that hold differences, that have differences of opinion, who are actually willing to turn toward each other and embrace one another in spite of their differences. And we're going to have those. We do have differences in the, in the church, don't we? But this peacemaker mentality gets people to turn toward each other instead of away from each other because of their differences. They, they say, uh, no, in spite of our differences, we're going to turn toward each other and embrace each other and pursue unity. In the original language, the part of the word from which we get the peace and peacemakers derive from the verb, which means to bind or to join together that which is broken or divided. The idea here is to set at one again. To set at one again. That's the idea here with that idea of peacemaker. And so we can extend that definition of peacemaker to include those who, who facilitate that, who, who encourage that, who pursue that binding together of people who were divided, that turning toward one another of people who were separated because of their differences, bringing unity to the church. 
What is it to be blessed in the pursuit of unity? I can only think of it this way. The sky's the limit. (laughs) Because if God's the one doing the blessing, He has all the resources. The resources that He may choose to bless us with may not be physical, but may be spiritual. And, And we need to get our hearts tuned this way. We ought to long for the spiritual blessings over the physical blessings. The spiritual blessings are eternal blessings. The physical are temporary, very temporary. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Matthew 5, 9. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Psalm 133.1. Do you know that God will bless even, even if you're unable to bring unity, if you're pursuing unity? Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's a powerful reminder. It's not necessarily always up to you, but what is up to you is your part, your willingness to turn toward others that you might be tempted to be turned away from because of your differences in the church. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. This is a good reminder for us. I'm not, um, I'm not saying these things thinking that you're, you've never heard these things before. But like Paul said to the Philippian church this morning that we noted this morning, to remind you is, is necessary and it's good for you. <laughs> and I need to be reminded of these things. Let's be people that God finds pursuing unity for for the sake of our joy, for the sake of God's glory, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of God's blessing, His riches that are, that are out of this world. Let's be people of God that He finds in pursuit of unity. And that pursuit of unity should be made possible by the grace and mercy and peace of God that He is working in us by way of His Spirit because we're His children, because we've trusted in Him, and we're constantly going to His Word to be trained by it, and we're constantly humbling ourselves before His Word to be corrected by it if need be, and, and we will need to be corrected by God's Word. So let's be those people pursuing peace that God finds and rejoices over like a father who finds his children playing together <laughs> with happiness and joy and contentment. May we be people that glorify God in our pursuit of unity in the church, that we would promote this, that we would encourage this, that we would bring others along in this desire to see God glorified in His church.